Well, good morning and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, I'm Judge Toby Hampson. Uh, to my right is Judge April Wood. To my left, Judge Jefferson Griffin. Uh, we do have one case on the calendar for oral argument today. That's uh, State v. Tripp. Um, if the parties are ready, we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is Amanda Zimmer. I'm an assistant appellate defender, and I represent David Tripp, Jr. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Over 25 years ago, 14-month-old David Reinhardt was hospitalized with multiple injuries. About a year after the injuries were inflicted, Mr. Tripp was convicted of four counts of child abuse. When David died another 20 years later, without any further conduct from Mr. Tripp endangering him, the state sought to prosecute Mr. Tripp for murder. The Constitution bars this prosecution because it violates Mr. Tripp's rights under the double jeopardy, due process, and law of the land clauses of the United States and North Carolina constitutions. Four interrelated issues are raised in the brief. I plan to focus on the double jeopardy issues and then discuss the due process claim. Because the events in this case span over two decades, I'd like to start by touching on some important dates in this case. First, on June 2nd, 1997, Mr. Tripp was indicted for child abuse against David, ranging from April 3rd, 1997, until April 11th, 1997. About a year later, on July 21st, 1998, Mr. Tripp pled to four counts of felony child abuse pursuant to a negotiated plea agreement. On February 14th, 2005, Mr. Tripp was released from prison after serving his active sentences. Three years later, on February 14, 2008, Mr. Tripp's probation was completed and he fully discharged the sentences for child abuse. About 10 years later, on March 6, March 6 2018, David died. On April 9, 2018, Mr. Tripp was indicted for his murder. Shortly thereafter, he moved to dismiss the prosecution based on his rights under the due process and double jeopardy protections. On June 28, 2021, the trial court denied Mr. Tripp's motion and found no double jeopardy or due process bar to the prosecution. This court allowed review of that order. And I'd like to start by talking about a case that's missing from that order, one that I believe is significant to this issue. And that case is State versus Griffin from this court in 1981. There, this court held that if the defendant was tried for death by vehicle after having been convicted of failing, failing to yield the right of way, he would be put in jeopardy a second time for the charge of failing to yield the right of way, even though the victim had not died until after the plea to failure to yield the right of way. This court based its holding on the United States Supreme Court saying that if a defendant has pled guilty to a crime and is later charged with another crime, the proof of which would prove all the elements of the crime to which he had previously pled guilty, then he has been twice tried for the first crime. Well, isn't this case distinguishable in that the child didn't die until many years later, so the element of the death of the victim didn't exist at the time that your client was originally charged with the child abuse? Well, it's true that he did not die until several years later in this case. In Griffin, the victim in that case had not died until several days after the guilty plea. So I don't think the passage of time distinguishes this case from Griffin because, as in this case, the plea had been entered prior to the death of the victim. How is this case distinguishable from Diaz versus the United States? Well, I think this case is distinguishable from Diaz versus the United States in that everybody here concedes that the child abuse 
is a lesser included offense of first degree murder. In Diaz, that was not the case. In Diaz, they talk about the, the, the defendant there was charged with an assault and battery and then subsequently charged with a homicide after the victim died. And Diaz is a very brief opinion, and it really doesn't have a ton of reasoning in it. But it does say that it was required that the assault and battery not be treated as included in a, as a lesser offense in the charge of homicide. They don't really explain that statement, but it is in there. And here, what we do have is a lesser included offense of homicide because the child abuse as conceded by all parties, is that lesser offense. So I think Diaz is distinguishable because it simply didn't involve a lesser included offense, which is what we have here. And later, even though the Diaz exception sort of pops up in many cases, the Supreme Court of the United States hasn't had the opportunity to apply it many times. And when you look at the cases decided after Diaz, it certainly draws emphasis to the lesser included offense aspect of that case. In Brown versus Ohio, the United States Supreme Court clearly said that a lesser included offense is the same offense for double jeopardy purposes as the greater offense. I'm, I'm, let me un, try and unpack it, try and see, make sure my understanding is, is, is correct. Um, my, my understanding is that the, the concession is if, you're, if, if we're operating under a, a felony murder theory, mm -hmm. then the child abuse charge would, would sort of be a, a required element. Yes. Of, of felony murder. Mm -hmm. Is that necessarily true under a different theory uh, of, of murder? You know, whether premeditation, torture, that kind of thing. Could, I mean, maybe put another way, could you be charged at the same time and convicted at the same time of both felony child abuse and, and a first degree murder? If this had been done in a single prosecution, I think you could be. But here, this is a successive prosecution where double jeopardy protections are greater. And what we have is a lesser included offense of the theory of felony murder. But what we have is one offense of first degree murder. So I don't think you can break down the elements of premeditation, deliberation, and torture to just avoid a double jeopardy bar in a circumstance where we're talking about a successive prosecution. Certainly when you have one prosecution and a felony murder or multiple theories of murder, of course the state can pursue multiple theories but I don't think they can rely on multiple theories here to avoid a double jeopardy bar under felony murder and first degree murder because we have one offense of first degree murder and the North Carolina Supreme Court has been clear that defendants are convicted of the offense of first degree murder. They are not convicted of a theory. So I don't think you can break it down by elements just to avoid this prosecution or the bar caused by the double jeopardy clause. And Sort of returning to the Diaz exception, because I do think that's important to this case. So I, hang on, it's your position that you can't, they, the state can't proceed on any other theory of first degree murder because of the child abuse conviction? Yes. So you're, you're saying that, that that cancels out every other theory of first degree murder? I'm saying that they cannot proceed to the offense of first degree murder, because even though there may be different theories that involve different ways of proving it, there is one offense of first-degree murder, and that prosecution is barred because he has already been convicted of a lesser-included offense, the child abuse. But child abuse is a lesser-included offense of first-degree murder? I'm, I'm sorry, could you repeat I'm, I'm just, how, is your position that the child abuse is a lesser-included offense of yes, first-degree murder? Yes, that is my position. Based off just the felony murder theory? Yes. 
Right. You don't, you don't have any authority that, that says felony child abuse is a lesser included offense of first degree murder, the same way, you know, second degree murder might. No. No, Your Honor, I don't believe there's any authority to that point. But a defendant is convicted of the offense, not of the theory. And you want us to here say that the theory is that it had to be felony murder when the state is proceeding on the offense of first degree murder. Yes, Your Honor. I'm saying that you're convicted of an offense, not a theory. And under this, this indictment, which the state correctly points out, charges all theories and any form of first degree murder, and one of those is felony murder. And under felony murder, child abuse is certainly a lesser included offense on these facts. So under this, this circumstance, they cannot proceed at all on first degree murder under any theory. Um, and the state makes a point of repeatedly saying they don't have to declare what theory they plan to proceed on. They have admitted, essentially, that felony murder would apply here, but maybe PND and also murder by torture could apply. But they won't be bound by any theory. So the indictment certainly covers first degree murder. And under these facts, child abuse is a lesser included offense. And going back to the Diaz exception, I want to just briefly touch on some cases decided after it. As I said, Brown versus Ohio is significant in that it makes clear that even if you're convicted of a lesser offense first, double jeopardy will bar a conviction for a greater offense. And when the United States Supreme Court attempted to grapple with Brown and the Diaz exception in United States versus Garrett, um, they had some problems doing so. In Garrett, there was a significantly different crime than what's involved here in that it was a continuing criminal enterprise which relied on multiple um, conspiracies to distribute drugs throughout the United States. Um, but what Garrett said that was interesting is that it implies that when there's a single course of conduct that forms the basis for the lesser included offense, the Diaz exception may not apply because that conduct is fully covered, even though later conduct may give rise to a greater offense. Um, in, Gr in Garrett, they said, Mr. Garrett had never completed his criminal conduct and he kept going with his criminal offenses after the, the predicate felonies had already been um, tried. Here, we don't have that. We have a single course of conduct from 1997 that resulted in injuries to the child um, and he eventually succumbed to those injuries. Uh, or not to the injuries necessarily. At this point, we know that the, the preliminary opinion is that he died from remote trauma. Um, related to the 1997 injuries. Um, because of the nature of the offense in Garrett, it didn't fall neatly under Brown. But what we have here does fall neatly under Brown. There's a single course of conduct. Everything that Mr. Chip allegedly did in 1997 is as relevant to the charge of murder as it was to the charge of child abuse. Their state has in no way implied there's conduct unrelated to the child abuse charges that caused any sort of injury to David or that there was any conduct after 1997 that somehow Mr. Tripp is accused of con contributing to his death. So under Griffin and under um, Brown, I think that this is clear that the Diaz exception doesn't apply here. Um, and for the reasons stated in the brief, there's, there's a lot of reasons that the Diaz exception sort of, it's not merely the passage of time that has changed the impact of Diaz, but We've had significant double jeopardy decisions after it that simply don't account for it. For example, it doesn't discuss block, the Blockburger test. It certainly can't discuss Brown because those cases were decided many years later. Um, and for these reasons, we don't think that the Diaz exception should apply here to allow this prosecution to go forward. And 
kind of returning to Judge Wood's point, we do think that a conviction for first degree murder is barred under any theory alleged by the state at this point. To hold otherwise would allow for successive prosecutions that I don't think anybody really thinks they can do. But don't you think this is a, I mean, it's a particularly unique circumstance to have someone die after the, after the crime? Yes, Your Honor. Do you think this is? I mean, isn't that why there's the Diaz exception on, in our case law? I don't know that that's why the Diaz exception exists. The state contends that the Diaz exception is, exists so that the defendant will not escape punishment. But there's no question here that Mr. Tripp has not escaped punishment. He had 10 years of punishment for whatever conduct he may have committed in 1997. So the Diaz exception, as I said, the opinion gives very little reasoning for why that exception should exist. And here, where there's a lesser included offense that's already been punished, punishing the greater offense just runs afoul of the double jeopardy clause. Um, the double jeopardy protection against successive prosecutions is really for the benefit of the defendant to have finality, to have repose, and to not have something hanging over their head for the rest of their lives. Because eventually, David was going to die. Does the state, have to, do. does the state have to charge? Um, is there any statute of limitations on felony charges? There is no statute of limitations. And at the time, so is, would your argument probably, if, if adopted, would it encourage the state to delay charges and do the opposite of what you're arguing? I'm not sure that it would encourage the state to delay charges. They can't, they can't prosecute somebody for a homicide um, because of a prior prosecution. I mean, if, if there's a chance that the, the victim may, may die, right. would they not want to delay it to see if the, somebody died? And that would certainly be their choice. And at the time that Diaz was decided, the year and a day rule was in place. So if the state had to make that decision under the um, the world of Diaz, the state would only be delaying a year and a day. That would have been the maximum. They would have been having to delay to decide whether or not to proceed. And if the, the victim hadn't died in a year and a day, they couldn't pursue a murder charge. But we've done away with the, the year and a day rule. So if they wanted to wait, they could wait. But the reality is that everybody will die at some time. So they could go forward with the child abuse charges and attempt to punish Mr. Tripp at that point. And use that as in our state constitution to rehabilitate him, to reform him and prevent him from further crime. And I would contend that's what happened here. Mr. Tripp hasn't been charged with any further criminal conduct. He has moved on with his life. He's married, he has children. Everybody moved on. So the state could have foregone and they, they could have waited until David died to decide whether or not to pursue murder charges. But here, they chose to go forward in 1997 with child abuse charges and seek to punish Mr. Tripp then. They can't now come back, even though David has died. So hypothetically, had the state uh, indicted Mr. Tripp on a specific theory of murder, mm -hmm. just torture, just premeditation, not mm -hmm. felony murder, uh, would your argument still stand? I think my argument would still stand because, again, regardless of the theory alleged by the state, the offense is first-degree murder, and there's a version of first-degree murder that is barred by double jeopardy. So I don't think they can get away from that just by charging a different theory. So I think the argument would be a little bit more complicated had they used a long-form indictment, but I don't believe that that would preclude my argument here. And then, again, my fallback position, as explained in the brief, is that, alternatively, we need a same conduct or same evidence, a secondary test to protect defendants 
in these successive prosecution situations from being continuously retried for the same conduct. So under that theory, it certainly would not change um, any prosecution based on the conduct from 1997, I contend, would be barred by a test such as the one employed by the United States Supreme Court briefly in Grady, and which has been occasionally used by um, our courts to look not just at the elements, but at the facts and what will be proven at trial. And even though this, the, the state points out that our Supreme Court and this court have repeatedly relied on the Blockburger test, the court has also relied on the same evidence test past Dixon when the United States Supreme Court said that Blockburger was the test. As recently as 2007 in State versus Newman when dealing with a resist, delay, and obstruct and assault on a government officer, this court recognized it had to look at the evidence and what the state would prove when determining if a, a successive prosecution was barred by double jeopardy. So my fallback position to if they had in, indicted under a specific theory would be that, that that prosecution would still be barred because the same conduct would have to be proved and because they can't simply avoid the consequences of the double jeopardy clause by alleging a different theory that they contend is not barred. Um, unless there's more questions about the double jeopardy issues, I'll move on and briefly just touch on the due process claim. Due process requires repose once the defendant has paid their debt to society. Mr. Tripp was imprisoned for six and a half years and was on probation for three. He successfully did everything the state asked of him. To subject him for more punishment, to more punishment at this point, when he has not engaged in any further conduct, violates our concept of ordered liberty. And I think here it's important to touch on the statute of limitations and the year and a day rule. Back before 1994, this prosecution simply couldn't be had as a matter of law because any connection between the injuries in 1997 and the death in 2018 as a matter of law would have been attenuated. But we've done away with that. But we haven't done away with the idea of finality and repose. And Mr. Tripp accepted responsibility He's, he took his punishment, he served his probation, and since then he's stayed out of trouble. He's done what we ask of people when they have allegedly committed a wrong and been punished. He reformed. So here we have a lot of issues coming up due to the passage of time that wouldn't have existed when Diaz was decided, when Meadows was decided, and when Griffin was decided, because the year and a day rule would have prevented this prosecution. Um, but in, Sort of getting my timeline together here. The, so 1994 was when the year and a day rule was abolished. Yes, Your Honor, in State versus Vance. Mm -hmm. And so, and the criminal conduct at issue occurred here in 1998. So I mean, constructively. Yes, 1997. So about three years after we did a day away with the, the year and a day rule. So constructively, I mean, there's there's notice that 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 rule no longer applies and and could not be relied on for conduct. Right. In 97. So how, how was due process implicated in, in, in that sense? Well, I think that it's implicated in the sense of even though there's not that, that bright line rule of when a prosecution can cease to exist, there's still the idea of repose and the idea that once you have done your time, you can move past that conduct unless you do something else to merit punishment. And here, Mr. Tripp has not done anything else. He has paid his debt to society. He was punished. And allowing the state to now come back, it just doesn't serve the purposes 
of punishment. And in the memorandum of additional authority, I cited to State versus Kelleher, because this, in that case, our Supreme Court points to our constitutional provision addressing punishment, which is part of which is to reform the person and sure that they don't ensure that they don't keep committing crimes. And here, that's what's happened with Mr. Tripp. He was punished. He hasn't committed any more crimes, and yet we're saying he should be punished more, even though he hasn't done anything, even though the result. The, the state contends that the result of that conduct changes the entire nature of the prosecution from child abuse and now it's murder. But it doesn't change what happened in 1997 and it doesn't change the fact that Mr. Tripp has already been punished. And as a society, we sort of embrace the concept of once you've paid your debt to society, you shouldn't be punished further. Um, and, and due process is sort of a flexible concept in that way. It's designed to, to step in when something just feels unfair. And without the year and a day rule to protect a defendant from these long delays or a statute of limitations, the due process clause has to step in to say, this, this just isn't what we accept. So you're, you're asking us to make a new rule. I don't think I'm asking you to make a new rule. I think this is in, implicit in, the, in both the double jeopardy case law and in due process that you have a right to repose. And once you have a final conviction, you're not subject to further punishment. I don't think that's a new concept, and I don't think you have to make new law to embrace that concept here. Do you have another case other than Keller you can point to, since Keller is the one that dealt with the Eighth Amendment as it was in relation to juvenile murders? Um, as far as due process and repose, State versus Brunson from the, the Supreme Court talks about how repose is a part of the double jeopardy clause. And part of the argument here is that the double jeopardy clause should resolve this case. This should not be tried because of double jeopardy. But if double jeopardy isn't good enough to stop this prosecution, then the due process clause should step in. So the idea of repose. Did the, did the trial court make any ruling on the due process clause issue? They, there's no specific findings to the due process clause. There is just the finding that the motion is denied. So there is no finding. Based specific. on double jeopardy, though. Yes. Not, not, not specifically due process. It doesn't specify. In the order, it just says the motion is denied. And both claims were clearly raised in the motion. Um, so, Your Honor, I would point you to State versus Brunson for the idea of repose. Um, I don't have another case more in point. In Kelleher, I'm citing mostly for the general principle that these clauses from the United States Constitution and our Constitution, they don't have to be decided in lockstep, and our Constitution can provide more protection than uh, the United States Constitution. And really, this case is very different from anything addressed by the United States Supreme Court or the North Carolina Supreme Court. David didn't die until 2018. This was almost 21 years after the incident, almost 20 years after Mr. Tripp's plea, 10 years after Mr. Tripp had fully discharged his sentences for his conduct. Um, this is just different than Diaz or Meadows when we were talking about time periods less than a year and a day. Uh, the elimination of factors such as the, the year and a day rule sort of changed the scope of Diaz and Meadows in a way that I don't think could have been anticipated at the time they were decided. In Green versus the United States, the United States Supreme Court said, the right not to be placed in jeopardy more than once for the same offense is a vital safeguard in our society, one that was dearly won and one that should continue to be highly valued. 
If such great constitutional protections are giving narrow, grudging application, they are deprived of much of their significance. Mr. Tripp accepted responsibility for David's injuries in 1998. He served his full prison term and probation. He has a right to move on and put this incident behind him. But after just year, over 10 years of freedom, he is again subject to the ordeal of a criminal trial. Double jeopardy principles should prevent him from having to run the gauntlet again, and if they don't, due process principles should. This court should not engage in a narrow, grudging application of the right to be free from double jeopardy and the right to due process at issue here, because doing so would deprive them of their significance. For the reasons argued here and in the brief, Mr. Tripp respectfully requests that this course dismiss the murder charge against him. Unless there's any further questions at this point, I'll reserve my, the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Donna. Uh, we'll hear from the state. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Nick Sanders, and I'm an assistant attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. In 1997, a 14-year-old boy suffered extensive and severe injuries at the, hand of this at the hands of this defendant and his co-defendant. The victim sustained deep second and third degree burns to his buttocks and genitals to the point that his skin was falling off. He received numerous bone fractures across his body, including a skull fracture. He was left with multiple bruises on his face and head, scratch marks on his face, and puncture wounds to his legs. And these were only some of the injuries that he sustained. The toddler was left with, quote, very little normal brain tissue at the time of a CT scan. There was no communication between his brain and his limbs to the point where he could not chew. And the, the toddler would cry in excruciating pain to the point where he would occasionally stop breathing. The record shows that this victim could not have survived those injuries without medical intervention. But because of medical intervention, the victim did survive at that time. However, on March 6th of 2018, the victim ultimately died. So the question in this case, as we've been discussing here, is whether double jeopardy would prevent defendant from now being charged with first degree murder of the victim after his previous convictions for felony child abuse. And in answering that question, I'd like to begin by discussing the appropriate framework for this issue. Um, I believe in the briefs, defendant has acknowledged the Blockburger framework, but asked this court to also apply the same conduct test. And just so it's clear, this test has been explicitly rejected by both the United States Supreme Court and our own Supreme Court. And in Dixon, the United States Supreme Court explained why that framework is, is not functional and why it should not be adopted by courts. And this court in State versus Sparks explained that blo the Blockburger test is to be followed under both the United States and North Carolina constitutions. And just to, again, just to be clear, this test is the same for both the multiple punishments context and the multiple prosecutions context. Those two things, they have the same exact test and it's the Blockburger test. You, do you, you concede that the prosecution for murder in this case would fail under a felony murder theory under the double jeopardy bar? 
it would not pass the Blockburger test because this, I believe our Supreme Court, and I believe this was in Millsaps, held that when a defendant is convicted of felony murder, the underlying felony that serves as the predicate um, constitutes an element of that offense and merges into it. So the defendant cannot be sentenced for both. So yes, that is true. But that's not the end of the inquiry. As we've been discussing here, there's this additional exception that's been recognized for over a century stemming from Diaz. And that's an exception to the general rule. So just because block, the Blockburger test would not permit that specific theory does not mean that it would violate double jeopardy to proceed on first degree murder based on that theory because it falls within an ex a well-recognized exception to the rule. And so I'd like to turn to the Blockburger test actually. Um, and the test is well established. I'm sure this court is very aware that where an act violates two statutory provisions, this court must look to each statutory provision to see if each one contains an element that the other does not. So I'd like to look at the, the charge of first degree murder and the different theories that can underlie that charge. So the defendant does not, con it does not appear that the defendant contests that felony child abuse and first degree murder based on theories of premeditation and deliberation or torture, that those would be distinct under the Blockburger test. It appears that the main concern here, and the main question here is the, the charge of first degree murder under a theory of felony murder that would use the felony child abuse as the predicate felony. And I'd now like to get into answering that question because as we've talked about, that would not necessarily pass the Blockburger test, but we have this Diaz exception. And under that exception, the double, double jeopardy is not violated when the state is unable to proceed on the more serious charge at the first prosecution because necessary additional facts have not occurred. And in this, in this case, the exception's applicability is clear. At the time the defendant was charged with and convicted of felony child abuse, the victim's death had not occurred. Uh, the state could not have proceeded with first-degree murder at that time because an essential element of first-degree murder is the victim's death. Now, the state, though, could have proceeded on um, perhaps the felony of attempted murder because as evidenced by the Alford plea in this case, that everyone anticipated the victim was going to die or there would be a subsequent prosecution at some point. That is correct. That all, it appears that all parties recognize that the victim would likely ultimately die of these injuries and that a prosecution could take place in the future. Um, but the state couldn't have proceeded on a charge of actual first degree murder. And that's what, that's what the defendant has been indicted with in this case. So that's the inquiry that we have to undertake is whether the charge of first degree murder could have been brought at that time. And the answer is no, that it could not have because the victim's death had not ensued. It raises an interesting hypothetical though. Had had the defendant been charged with attempted murder in this case, is, what's the state's position on whether the state could proceed on a murder charge uh, 20 years later? Your Honor, and I believe in a memorandum of additional authority that the state filed, that was almost the exact scenario, and I believe it was a New Hampshire case. It was state of New Hampshire versus Hutchinson. Um, the defendant in that case had been convicted, I believe, of attempted murder, um, and then I believe it was about 16 years later that the victim ultimately died and the, the defendant was then charged with the actual murder. And the New, New Hampshire court kind of went through the Diaz exception as we're going here and found that that was permissible because the fact of the, the victim's death, which is necessary for a charge of actual murder, had not occurred at the first prosecution of attempted murder. So it found that charge would be permissible and would not violate double jeopardy. Is New Hampshire law distinguishable from North Carolina law in that attempted murder is not a lesser included offense of murder? 
Uh, Your Honor, in all candor, I'm not exactly sure of New Hampshire law um, on that point, but I would say just the general principles under the federal constitution of double jeopardy would apply equally to both. And so speaking of these, these other jurisdiction, although our appellate courts or our Supreme Court haven't previously had a chance to address the Diaz exception in a case exactly like this, where you have um, a first degree murder charge after, um, after a potential felony murder, after a conviction for a felony, its application in this case would be perfectly in line with other jurisdictions. Of course, there's the Whittlesey case from Maryland that was affirmed on habeas review by the Fourth Circuit that was discussed in the briefs. I won't go over that in much detail here because I believe it was fully briefed. Um, but in that scenario, it was similar. A defendant was convicted of a felony and then was later con- charged with first degree murder um, based on a theory of felony murder. And the Maryland courts found that that would not violate double jeopardy and the Fourth Circuit affirmed on habeas review. Um, and then we've discussed the Hutchinson case from the New Hampshire court. And then the last one that I would like to briefly discuss is the Hill case from Texas. Um, in that case, the defendant was convicted of aggravated robbery. When the victim died after these convictions, the state indicted the defendant for capital murder based on a felony murder theory. The defendant made the same double jeopardy argument that he's making as the defendant here, and he's making a lot of the same arguments as to why Diaz exceptions should not be applied, such as the age of the decision that there have been ensuing double jeopardy cases since the decision of Diaz. But the Texas Appellate Court rejected those arguments. It correctly recognized that the Supreme Court hasn't abandoned this exception and in fact continues to recognize it. And that has not changed in the ensuing decisions by our Supreme Court. And numerous ones that we've cited in our brief, the court continues to recognize this Diaz exception. And and returning to the Hill case, the Texas um, Court of Appeals held that because the state could not have proceeded on murder at the time of the first prosecution for aggravated robbery, double jeopardy would not bar that prosecution once the victim died. So although our courts haven't specifically addressed this issue, there have been other courts who have. We have um, numerous other states that have applied this well-established exception in a case very similar to this, and this court's application of it would just simply bring it in line with the many other jurisdictions who have done the same. So I just, to, to clarify, the, the state's position is that you could proceed on a felony murder theory because of the Diaz exception. Yes, Your Honor. You're not, okay, all right. That is correct. The state's position is, as, we've, as the, I believe the defendant pointed out, um, the state has indicted the defendant for first degree murder using a short form indictment. So it has not at this point, because this is interlocutory, the state has not pr- elected to proceed on a specific theory. Um, so we look at each theory that the state could proceed on. If we looked at... If, if we were to accept, if we were to accept the, the premise that the state could not proceed on the felony murder piece under, under the Blockburger analysis... I mean, how, how, but thought that maybe it could proceed under a different theory. How are we as an appellate court able to try and carve that out? Or can we carve it out? Or, or, or as the defendant argues, is this really just one, one offense? 
have multiple parts to that answer. And first, I would just That's like to, to disclaim that each theory in this case is permissible. Um, felony murder, premeditation, deliberation, torture, all do, are not violated by double jeopardy. But in the instance that you're talking about, um, the state could proceed, still proceed on premeditation and deliberation theory or a torture theory, even if the felony murder theory was unavailable. I will say the defendant correctly states first degree murder is a single offense, but it's not that simple. The, it is, although it is a single offense, it has multiple theories. And to look to adequately apply the Blockburger test, you have to look at elements. If you look at the statutory provision for first degree murder, there's not going to be any elements there. So it's necessary to look at it theory by theory because each one has distinct elements. So that's necessary. And if you and as we've discussed, premeditation, deliberation, and theory, and um, torture theories, those would pass the Blockburger test here. So if those were the only ones available to the state, it could still proceed on that, despite if this court said that the felony murder theory was unavailable. And I mean, I think that would not be holding anything new. I would venture to say that most of the time, um, first degree murder cases, the evidence doesn't support each and every theory of first degree murder. There are, mi there are many cases where um, a case where the evidence would support premeditation deliberation, but torture is simply irrelevant. The evidence would be insufficient to support that theory if it was submitted to the jury. That doesn't mean first degree murder on premeditation deliberation is barred in that scenario. I mean, there are no cases that held if one, that hold that if one theory of first degree murder is not available to the state in a prosecution, all other theories and the, first, the charge of first degree murder in general are not available to the state. That would not be a new, that would, there's no rule that would require that, Your Honor. And I'd like to briefly address the Garrett decision that defendant discussed in his reply brief and that has been discussed here today by the, Supreme, by the United States Supreme Court. In that case, the defendant was convicted of importing marijuana on specific dates in Washington and was later indicted for continuing a criminal enterprise for a range of dates in Florida. The defendant argued that the predicate marijuana offense was a lesser included offense of continuing a criminal enterprise. And so if you look at the Supreme Court's decision, it had two parts. We have this first part that initially talks about whether the two were the same offense or whether um, the predicate the predicate offense would be a lesser included of the continuing criminal enterprise. And of course, I won't go through that here because it's not particularly relevant, but the court had serious doubts as to whether they were the same offense. But what's important here is that the second part of the, the opinion, the court assumed arguendo that the predicate felony of importing marijuana was a lesser included offense of continuing criminal enterprise. And the court held that it would fall within the Diaz exception because the continuing criminal enterprise charged against Garrett, the defendant in that case, had not been completed at the time he was indicted on the marijuana offense. The, the court majority in that case did not add a requirement to the Diaz exception that additional criminal conduct has to occur after the prosecution. Instead, it focused on the incomplete nature of the second crime at the time of the first prosecution. So although it's a different scenario with different charges, it's equally applicable here. Um, we have an incomplete crime of murder at the time the defendant pled to and was convicted of felony child abuse. The death of the victim had not, had not occurred. And while Justice O'Connor in her concurrence stated that a defendant's interest in finality is more compelling when there is no continued wrongdoing. That was only a concurrence, and I don't believe there were any justices that joined her in that. And if you look back to that New Hampshire case that we were talking about, Hutchinson, um, there's a good description of why this, 
this rationale of continued wrongdoing should not be the test. Um, the court says the fact that defendant's underlying criminal acts were completed prior to his initial prosecution does not negate the state's legitimate interest in prosecuting a newly completed, more serious crime, one that it could not have pursued at the time of the initial prosecution. So the, that just, I believe that makes clear if you look at that case, the Garrett case doesn't change the Diaz exception. It doesn't add a requirement of continued wrongdoing after the first prosecution. The test is still whether a necessary element, whether a necessary element had occurred at that time. And if there are no further questions on the double jeopardy issue, I'd like to briefly turn to the due process issue. Simply put, Your Honors, there is no fundamental unfairness in this case for due process. There was no prosecutorial oversight. There was no prosecutorial misconduct. The state had no control over when the victim in this case would pass away from the injuries that defendant inflicted upon him. As Justice O'Connor has written, um, the United States Supreme Court has consistently recognized that a defendant's interest in finality is not absolute and that it must accommodate the societal interest in prosecuting and convicting those who violate the law. Is it, is it significant here, particularly as to the due process claim, that, that not only had the defendant uh, been convicted, um, but had actually fully served and completed both, both the active and probationary portions of the sentence. I mean, that, does, does that not weigh on the due process argument uh, more than if it was still in the midst of the sentence or if this occurred shortly after conviction? I, mean, I don't believe- doesn't, doesn't that increase the level of finality in this case? I don't believe it does, Your Honor. Um, first, I would point to the fact that defendant was aware that, the defendant was aware that further prosecutions could take place. If you look in, in the record, in his plea agreement, it specifically notes that he reserves any double jeopardy arguments in case of future prosecution. And the state, I believe, said that it was, um, it was not waiving its right for further prosecutions in light of other events. So the defendant was on notice that if the victim succumbed to the injuries that defendant inflicted on him, there could be another prosecution. So the defendant was on notice of that, and he still, still pled guilty. And if you look to the motion to dismiss, I believe it's page 16 in that motion, the defendant uh, confirms that all along he knew that um, another prosecution would take place, he just thought it would be sooner. But for due process, there w the state had no control over when that would be, whether it would be while defendant was serving his sentence or whether it would be after the defendant completed his sentence. Um, again, there was no oversight, there was no misconduct. The state simply had no control over that. It was simply the fact that medical intervention saved the victim for that long, and then the victim ultimately succumbed to his injuries when he did. There was no, there was no unfairness by the state in this case. The defendant was on notice that this would occur. Um, so I think all of that plays into the due process, but not in the way um, that the defendant would suggest. So, Your Honors, just, just to recap, um, 
double jeopardy would not be violated by a prosecution for first-degree murder in this case under theories of premeditation deliberation, torture, or felony murder. And the first two, the Blockburger, the Blockburger test, um, the, those charges would pass that test. And in the latter scenario, felony murder, it falls firmly within the well-recognized Diaz exception. And for the reasons that we just discussed, due process would also not be violated um, by this prosecution. Um, if there are no further questions, uh, the state asks you to affirm the trial court's order denying the defendant's motion to dismiss. Thumbs up. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear rebuttal. May it please the court. The state wants to emphasize cases from other jurisdictions, but I want to bring us back a little closer to home. And I want to start by talking about State versus Meadows, which is one of the rare cases in which the Diaz exception was applied. And I think it's important to note what Meadows didn't do. And Meadows didn't discuss a lesser included offense. And in Griffin, this court made that point. It said Meadows didn't apply the Blockburger test and find that the felony assault at issue in Meadows was the same offense as the homicide, the second degree murder charge there. And I point out that it's second degree murder because the court there didn't have to grapple with these different theories alleged by the state. It was second degree murder, so it didn't address that. So Meadows, while it did apply the Diaz exception, we contend it's distinguishable because it didn't apply it to first degree murder and it didn't involve a lesser included offense. Uh, and then Griffin did involve those things. It involved a lesser included offense and this court said that a new fact developing doesn't change the fact that the second prosecution was for the same offense. Because Griffin is more on point with what happened here, we contend that it's controlling and should show that this court at least once has rejected the Diaz exception. The state in its brief said it didn't address Diaz, but that feels a little disingenuous because they clearly address a new fact developing. And to briefly touch on the Hutchinson case, one of the things the New Hampshire court points out is that this defendant didn't bring forward any authority that the Diaz exception didn't apply. Here we have Griffin. Here we also brought forth Todd versus Lansdowne from Oklahoma, which is very similar to what happened here. There was a single course of conduct, and the defendant was charged with the child abuse offense and then later charged with murder. Um, and the court there said that the murder prosecution couldn't be had because the same conduct that was the basis for the child abuse charge was the basis for the murder charge. So while the state may have more cases saying that the Diaz exception does apply, there are cases finding that double jeopardy principles here bar a second prosecution. And our court can apply a greater level of protection than the United States Supreme Court. And it certainly doesn't have to apply the same level of double jeopardy protection afforded by other states. So, so hypothetically, if the, I'm just kind of changing gears a little bit, but hypothetically, if, if the prosecutor decided to wait 20 years to bring the charges to prosecute the case, I mean, would you file a speedy trial motion? If there's no charges pending, a speedy trial motion wouldn't lie. Speedy trial protection only kicks in at the point at which there's been an accusation. So there wouldn't be a speedy trial motion. Whether or not there would be a due process. Would you make a due process argument? I mean, if, the, if what happened if, in your hypothetical, if the death didn't occur for 20 years, I don't know that I would I probably would make a due process argument because in 20 years there's a lot of other considerations such as witnesses 
disappearing, evidence disappearing. But that's a question I would have to answer based on that case at that time. The due process issue here is just related to the fact that this defendant has already been punished for his conduct, and now 20 years later, he shouldn't be punished further. Isn't Griffin very distinguishable, though, because that involved an accident, a motor vehicle accident, and for failure to yield right away, and then subsequently someone died, and so they brought misdemeanor death by motor vehicle, but Meadows was a murder case. More significantly on point in this, in this particular case than Griffin, where it involved an accident and didn't involve any intent. No, I don't think it's distinguishable on that basis. I don't think that the double jeopardy principles apply differently under those circumstances. What is that issue is a second prosecution for the same offense. That was what was at issue at Meadows, that's what's at issue in Griffin, and that's what is at issue here, is that successive prosecution, which is at the core of the double jeopardy um, protection. But and in Meadows, it involved an assault, an actual assault with a deadly weapon and then the victim subsequently died and the court, our Supreme Court, held that a subsequent indictment for murder was appropriate and fell under the Diaz exception. Right, and there the court didn't address Brown versus Ohio's lesser included offense attest, test because Brown hadn't been decided and because we've long said that felony assault is not a lesser included offense of second degree murder. So. Meadows is a different situation where we're not involving a lesser included offense, even though it involved a more serious charge than Griffin. I still contend that Griffin is more similar to what occurred here. And one other point I just like to touch on with um, the policy considerations. And as the state said, Justice O'Connor pointed out that the right to be free from double jeopardy is an absolute. And yet, our Supreme Court in State versus Courtney said that when a an individual's right to be free from a second prosecution is implicated, it's not up for debate for counterbalancing policy considerations. We recognize as far back as the 1800s in this state that sometimes the double jeopardy clause would result in someone not being able to be prosecuted because they'd already been prosecuted. And that that might sometimes result in somebody escaping from punishment but we still thought better to adopt it, and that was an in-respire from, from the North Carolina Supreme Court. So this state has a long history, if I could just briefly wrap up. If you up, can wrap up, please. Has a long history of recognizing the significance of protection from successive prosecutions, and that's what we have here, is a successive prosecution, and the defendant, again, being tried for the same offense. So I'd ask that you dismiss the charge against him. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you to both counsel for your excellent arguments today. Um, very much appreciated. And uh, the case is submitted. And Mr. Clerk, we'll adjourn. All rise. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is now adjourned.